Are you ready to help decide the winners of the Servi Awards? Our award that recognizes the front of house all-stars that keep the restaurant industry going? After receiving close to 8,000 nominations from all 50 states, our industry judges have selected 40 finalists. But it's up to you to decide who wins the Servi's trophy, a pair of free snib shoes, and a $3,000 tip. Three thousand dollars. Visit theservies.com to meet the finalists and hear their stories. From Montana to Florida, there are some fantastic stories of folks who make us proud to work in this industry. You can vote once per category every single day through September 17th. This is just one of the many ways we're working to make life a little better for the restaurants we love, and there's more good stuff to come. Vote today at theservies.com. Now here we go. I would like to see the restaurant industry work at rewarding our team members for the hard work they do. I think too many restaurants just look at labor as an expense. Let's just throw some dollars at it and we'll get whatever output we get. If we lose them, we'll retrain. I don't think that's going to work anymore. I think we really need to loop in our employees into the success of what we're trying to build. Welcome to Full Comp a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Bruce Nelson never dreamed of becoming the chief financial officer of a restaurant group. He wanted to be a restaurateur, just like the rest of us. But when he achieved his dream of restaurant ownership, his life became a nightmare. Coming off hard years and the closure of that restaurant, he took the time to figure out why. And it turns out, it was the math. On a foundational level, his business was doomed to fail from the beginning because he was using bad math. In today's conversation, Bruce walks us through what a sound financial strategy looks like and how to create a wildly profitable restaurant. Well, my father was a restaurateur, so I started working in his restaurants at the age of 13. I started out washing dishes, moved to cooking, and by the time I was 18, I was managing writing menus and uh, wine lists. I then went off to college, took a little hiatus from the restaurant business, but right out of college, went to work for a large catering company that took me to uh, Target Center where the Minnesota Timberwolves play. I ran their executive suite level. I worked for another large Italian restaurant and eatery concept, opened up two of my own restaurants over the course of that time and most recently have been the CFO of Nova Restaurant Group. I've been in this position since 2009. Nova Restaurant Group is located in the Minneapolis area of Minnesota. We have eight existing restaurants, one set to open in about a month, and then we're developing a new pizza delivery concept that'll open in November. So that'll take us to nine and 10. It's a really interesting evolution. And one of the things you talk about in the book, High Level, which I really want to dig into, is this idea that the design was never to become a CFO. I mean, as a matter of fact, the design was just to run restaurants, enjoy running restaurants, and focus on people. But that enjoyment was impossible in large part because of the numbers, right? Exactly. I was a restaurateur. I loved operations. But about 2009, I found myself a single father of three children, and all of a sudden, the hours 
of restaurant operation didn't work in that scenario. So I had to shift. I'd always had an interest in numbers, more importantly, technology. So all the previous positions I held, I was the guy that the owners would look to and say, you make this piece of technology, talk to this piece of technology and make the numbers flow. So that's kind of how I got into doing the CFO work that I do now. Before we start unpacking the ideas from the book, the book's called Restaurant Management, The Myth, The Magic, and The Math. I first want to talk about why you felt compelled to write a book. Hmm. Interesting. It really started with a restaurant I opened in 2000 called Portofino Restaurant World Market. It was my dream restaurant at that time. I had been in the business for 20 years. I had worked for some of the largest operators in the Twin Cities. I really thought I knew how to run a restaurant. I opened up that restaurant, and it's a story many restaurateurs have. We failed in 13 months. So after failing in that restaurant, I really wanted to dig in and figure out how I missed it. What was the magic that I failed to understand at that time? And really, my work since I closed that restaurant in 2001 has been trying to understand what pieces of the puzzle I missed back then. Let's talk about that. So the chasm between managing someone else's business and running your own is vast, right? There are all of these things, and it feels like the same role, but it's completely different. It is. It is. Most restaurant operators at least people who work for restaurant operators are taught to hit certain metrics. We're told as a general manager, your food cost needs to be 30%. Your labor needs to be 29%. And we are giving the tools to get to that level. And we're being managed and judged on that. What we're not taught is what is the right percentage? And what is the right percentage? Well, that's the curious thing. If you look at industry, if I had a hundred restaurateurs in front of me right now, and I asked that question, I would get a hundred different answers and they all could be correct. What I learned is that we have to understand the entire picture of a restaurant, including overhead. Restaurants that have various different sales levels will have different overhead percentages. And that is the piece that I felt I missed back in the Portofino days. Let's get into the book. So the myth, the magic, and the math. Your success today was born out of your past failure, which I think is the story for so many of us. And I'm wondering, what should someone listening to this take away from your early life experiences as a restaurant owner and operator? What lessons from you should they internalize? Well, I think they should take a look at what their strengths are. When I went into that restaurant, my strengths were food, wine, managing people. I did not know how to do the accounting at that time. I didn't know how to do any of the marketing. What I hope people learn, especially independent restaurateurs, is that you can't be good at all these things. There is a point where if you want to take your restaurant to the next level, you have to have some experts, either consultants or third party to help you keep an eye on those other parts of it. I think what I find with a lot of independents is they show up every day thinking, okay, today's the day I'm going to put my invoices in. 
today's the day I'm going to call that vendor and double check on that meat price. And what happens to us is we show up and the dishwasher called in sick. We show up and the host is in a car accident. We spend all of our day in triage as restaurateurs and we never get to that important, oh my goodness, I need to get this marketing piece out or I have to get those invoices in so I can see what the hell I've got going on financially. When I look back at my Portofino days, that really was my daily routine is I'd come in saying, I need to do X, Y, and Z today. And then the restaurant shit happens and I never got to those. When we're talking about restaurant finance, it is this thing that has to happen every day. Every independent restaurant tour knows what it's like when we get to the end of the week and we go, oh my goodness, I haven't done this paperwork. Well, I'll do it on Monday. Well, then the weekend gets the best of us. Monday shows up and we still don't have time to do it. Now it's the end of the month and we're looking at a daunting, you know, 16 hour task in front of us. Putting in the information into your accounting system and to have the time to analyze what that means is so important. And if I could teach restaurateurs anything today, it is figure out how to get the information into a system and more importantly, how to analyze it so you can make good financial decisions for your restaurant. So let's get into the magic of our industry. How do you define magic? I define magic as this is what we do as restaurateurs. Whenever we come up with a concept, we create what we love. If we love coffee, we come up with a coffee shop that has the items, the ambiance, all the things that we would enjoy. If I'm creating a nightclub, it's the same thing. It's the music, the bass, the style, the atmosphere. That's what we do in the restaurant business. And that's what our guests are there for. They're not there to make sure we make money. They're not there to make sure that my employees have work. They're there for an experience. And I think this is the fun part of restauranting is we get to create all these wonderful environments and experiences. And for me, that's what I get up for every day. That's the fun part. And how can we weaponize that magic for ourselves? How can we utilize it in a way that actually improves our lives? Well, we create in these restaurants pseudo environments. And I think the way we improve our lives is we do the same for ourselves. If we envision our restaurant to look a certain way, we want to improve our personal life. We should envision our personal life to look a certain way and then try to achieve that as well. I also think that this kind of delves into limiting beliefs. This is an industry where you're born to focus on surviving instead of thriving. I coach independent restaurateurs. And the question that they struggle to answer most is, what do you want? And they're like, well, I'm hoping that we can achieve this by this date. And it's always a lowball estimate. And it's like, no, like, why did you get into this? How many hours a week do you want to work? What do you want to spend those hours doing? Where do you want to live? How many days a week do you want a vacation? How much money do you want to make? How much money do you want your business to make? We simply don't think in those terms. And so that to me is the magic of entrepreneurship. That to me is why we get into this. It's to create our own destiny. But intention, I think, plays such a huge part in that. And so as we delve into the math of this, I think it's incredibly important that we don't allow ourselves to experience these limiting beliefs, that we actually work to create a business that facilitates the life of our dreams. Because if not, 
why are we doing this? We could make comparable money working for someone else. And when we clock out, we're done. There's nothing to worry about. I talk to a lot of independent restaurateurs and I'm always surprised, probably as you are, that it's hard to get from them why they're doing this. They'll usually will say things like, well, I really like people. I love food. I love the culinary aspect of this. I think a lot of people get into it for freedom. You know, they got tired of working for that boss. They got tired of cooking what somebody else told them to cook versus what was their passion. But I rarely run into people that say, you know what? I got in this thing because I want to be a millionaire. But that is, I mean, there are very successful restaurateurs out there. And it's hard to understand why any of us would want to get into this business if we didn't think we could become successful. Absolutely. I want to go to this flashpoint, this moment of inspiration and clarity that you talk about in the book, where life experience meets technology meets like this forward trajectory in your career. At the time, you're a POS salesperson. And that's really when you began to put all of these individual elements together. Talk to me about that moment of clarity and what you realized. Sure. What happened back then is I was selling POSs and it in that stage of technology, most point-of-sale systems were integrating with other pieces of technology, most importantly, accounting systems. So there was the first time I had to learn, okay, when we're sending data from the point-of-sale, we're sending sales, we're sending labor, we're sending all these metrics from the POS, what does that mean to accountants? And so that's how I kind of back end learned how to do accounting is I needed to understand what these debits and credits meant when they hit the P&L. And I think what you're referring to is what was the aha moment. And the aha moment was instead of looking at restaurants from an operational point of view, where I'm told to hit a certain metric, I started looking at all the information that was flowing in saying, okay, everything is a percentage of the whole when you're looking at a P&L statement. And when I started analyzing restaurants as percentages of the whole, it opened up a different way to look at profitability versus what I had been taught. As I said before, I was taught that my job was to hit just certain metrics, a certain payroll number, a certain liquor cost number, a certain food cost number. And I was never told what that actually meant to the bottom line. When I got into integrating technology and seeing how all those ones and zeros came across on the other side on uh, the accounting ledger, it started to spell a different story for me as far as how to create profitable restaurants. And I can expand on that a little bit more. When I joined the Nova Group, we had, I think, six restaurants at that time, two quick service restaurants where the lowest sales were $600,000 a year. The highest one at that time was about $6 million. So I'm looking at P&L statements of a $600,000 operation and a $6 million operation. Yet at that time, we were looking at this saying, okay, if we just run the same food costs, labor costs, and normal operation costs in the, both these stores, we should be equally profitable. Well, we weren't. The $6 million store was far more profitable and the $600,000 store was losing money. So that's where I had to look at this and say, okay, what's different about these two things? Obviously, the sales is part of it, but that's not the whole story. We had to look at what's different about this $600,000 store that it can't make money 
hitting a 25% liquor cost where the $6 million store is throwing off cash left and right. So it was really looking at the various different types of concepts that opened up a different avenue for me to think about profitability. Well, and I think one of the first lenses through which you look at profitability is pricing, which I think is a great place to start. And in the book, you unpack the most common strategies for pricing. And I want to run through those with you briefly, and then let's get into the way we should be pricing at our restaurants. So the first one was benchmarking. Well, you know, interesting here is that I think a lot of restaurateurs, you know, look at their pricing two ways. They say, okay, what is my food cost? What do I have to charge to hit that food cost? That's a pretty easy calculation. They also look at external pressures. Okay, the guy down the street is selling his Budweiser for four bucks. I can't charge more than $4 for mine. So they kind of use both those metrics and say, okay, here's where my pricing is. And then once they set the price, then they go to their managers and say, okay, now you figure out how to hit 25% liquor cost. And my method is to go the other way around. I'll tell you what you need to do to make a 10 or 15% profit. And that'll tell you what you got to charge for your Budweiser. But I mean, how do you overcome the fear? (laughs) That's an interesting one. The fear with at least the owners I've been involved with and the operators is pricing themselves out of the competition. I'm assuming that's the fear you're talking about. There's a couple examples I use in the book. One of the big ones I think that restaurateurs fall into, and this would probably be back into your myth question, is that we need to have lost leaders. Some would call it a happy hour. If I want to get sales to a certain level, I got to bring in people that are interested in drinking half off tap beers and $10 apps. And once they set the hook on that, then they look and say, well, if I stop that, Joe is not going to come in and order his three beers over happy hour and I'm going to lose that revenue. My position on that is you can drive a lot of people into your restaurant by giving food away. How do we set the entire menu so that we're making the desired profit? seeing what was possible and going from good to great, you're going to learn something. Hearing different perspectives from different people in the group have inspired ideas or concepts that I've used since then that there's no way I would have ever come up with on my own. You pull it out of us as much as possible. When the well is dry, you pour a bucket in there and then tell us, now get it out. We could have been just as lost as when we started if all we got was, here's how to do it, go. These folks are independent restaurateurs, just like you, but they have one massive advantage that you don't. They have a proven plan. I'm launching my next restaurant marketing mastermind that brings together 12 owners and operators looking to massively scale revenue by working with me and by working with each other. This mastermind is so effective, we offer a money-back guarantee. So if you're interested in scaling your restaurant's revenue with a program that is guaranteed to work, apply today at restaurantmarketingmastermind.com. Again, that's restaurantmarketingmastermind.com. You might think being on the line and filling those tickets is the thing you need to do for your restaurant, but every burger you make is a marketing call or video that you didn't make to drive more sales into your restaurant to make things better. I would love to really kind of talk about the overarching ideas here. So when you're looking at pricing, what are the steps involved? Well, probably how most restaurateurs would look at this is, let's say you wanted to hit a 10% profit and you look at your bottom line, 
this quarter and you're hitting an 8% profit, you know a couple of things. You know what your sales are. You know how many customers came through the door. So you can figure out what was that customer spend to get you to your 8%. So the simple math is, okay, if we want to get 10%, let's say we need another $200,000 in sales, divide that by the customer count. Excellent. I need to get 80 cents more per customer. I'll just go do a blanket 80 cent increase in all my menu items, right? Have you heard that scenario? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That would work if we could understand menu mix. What is everybody ordering? Because we have, in most restaurants, we have some items that are very profitable. I'm doing a pasta item or I'm doing a pizza, far more profitable than beef tenderloin. So the 80 cent per price increase only works if the customers come in and have ordered the same exact menu mix. So I think that's one of the areas where people get stuck is they'll go and they'll do all that work and put it in and maybe they hit it, maybe they don't. My method is to say, I don't really care what the menu mix is because I want to make sure I set all my menu items to hit a desired profit level. Then I don't care if you order tenderloin or you order my pizza. Whatever you order is going to hit my profit objective. There seems to be a really clear delineation in your mind between being busy and being profitable. And with that being the case, and I agree with you wholeheartedly, what are your thoughts on discounts and comps coming from the role of a CFO? Do you see a role for those in our industry? And if so, how so? You know, it's kind of an ongoing battle with COVID changed how we looked at things because of limited seating. The first thing we said is, well, if we have limited seating, we're not going to do happy hour. And I think a lot of restaurants went down that path. Then as we came out of COVID, our guests came back and nobody was saying, hey, where's that cheap beer? They were just happy to have a restaurant that was open, that was good, that was serving good food. So I would say right now, at least half our restaurants never did return to happy hour. I think there is a place for discounts, but I think you have to figure out what it is you're trying to achieve. We opened up a restaurant near the Mall of America, and we thought it was going to be a home run right from the beginning. After a couple of months, we're looking at the sales going, man, we're just not tapping into these people. And it wasn't that we weren't getting the transient Mall of America folks. We weren't getting the people in the community. So we did a very targeted by income flyer to the neighborhood, you know, giving them a reason to come in. We launched that program and it was hugely successful and we've never had to do it again. So I think if we're smart about it, I think the discounting is good. I think where it gets to be a problem is if every Monday is buy one hamburger, get one free, you're just going to get people coming on Monday that just want cheap food. And the minute you remove that, discount, they're just simply not going to show up. There are two sides to this coin. So one is income, right? Which is, I think, the first big hurdle as a restaurateur. Mm -hmm. And then the second is keeping the money you're making. And one of the golden keys that you talk about in the book is truly understanding overhead. And so I want to begin with, what are some of the popular misconceptions around overhead? Well, I think that we don't have to pay attention to it. If you look at how a normal P&L statement is created, we have our sales and then we have our cost of goods, which is generally food, alcohol, labor show up into the gross profit. And then below that, we have a bunch of expenses like menus and reservation systems and repairs and maintenance. And then we get to this little thing at the bottom just called corporate overhead. 
or some call it uncontrollable expenses. And everybody seems to ignore that. But what's down there? Well, that's our rent is down there. Interest on debt is down there. We happen to put our benefits down there because they're non-controllable to the managers. So that number down there is pretty significant. And this is where you really run into a problem. So let's say my high volume stores have an uncontrollable percentage of, say, 6% goes into all that stuff down below the line. A lower volume store may be as high as 12%. I think most restaurateurs are missing that key difference between those two because they're still out there saying, well, my other restaurant was successful because I set these cost of goods and labor metrics. We find that even within our own system, we now have four Hazelwood food and drinks. They differ in volume from 11 million to about 6 million. And even within that group that has the same menu, the same concept, they have different profitability structures because you can play out the rent a lot different on 11 million than you can on six. So even within our stores, within our group, we have to look at these stores on an individual basis and say, if we want to return a certain percent to the bottom line, we have to factor in that the $6 million store has a higher overhead than the $11 million. I think a lot of that happens in early stages, right? Before you sign the lease, being able to accurately estimate how much money the restaurant will actually make. I have been a victim of my own optimism time and time again in the lease negotiation process. Five grand doesn't seem like a lot relative to the money that you're going to make. $21,000 a month didn't really seem like a lot to pay per month relative to the amount of money I thought we were going to make. But once you've signed the lease, once you're locked into these things, do you think there's anything you can do? I mean, in your experience, can you go back to the landlord and say, listen, like this thing isn't making money. And I know you want to make the money you're going to make, but either we're going to have to work out a new deal or you'll have to find a new tenant that can make this kind of money. Yeah. Boy, if I could tell, uh, give any advice is, you know, get some professionals to look at these leases. Uh, landlords are notorious for baking things into these leases that either step up at a certain percent increment every year, have percent rents involved, and they're set on certain dollar volumes. And if you do not hit those volumes, all of a sudden that lease becomes hugely untenable. Let's talk about pro formas. Pro formas are fun, right? Because it's you're planning to plan and this is where optimism rears its ugly head. And <laughs> but but they can also be really, really useful tools. And not just before you open, but after you've opened as well, when you're looking to the future. Talk to me generally about how you design a pro forma and how you use it. When I did the Portofino pro forma way back then, I used that as an example of what not to do. What I did with that pro forma is I created a, obviously what I thought I would do in sales and all the expenses. And I went into great detail on the concept and the build out and all this kind of stuff. I filled it also full of flowerly language because I thought that's what bankers and investors wanted to hear. I guess it worked because they financed it. But the bottom line was when I opened up the restaurant, I didn't even come close to hitting what I thought I could do. So when I do a performa now, I really keep it to the basics. Bankers and investors really start at the back of the performa and work forward. 
and then see if your assumptions are going to be realistic to hitting that that bottom line profit. So when I build performance now for a new store, like the one I'm doing for the pizza shop, that's pretty difficult. So we really have to get pretty granular in trying to understand what's going to happen with revenue and that's in that particular space. So I'll start with mapping out eat-in, takeout, and delivery on an hourly basis, seven days a week, just to get a grid put together, what I think revenues will be that I think is realistic. And then from there, I'll start building the performa. Now, what I'll do is when I complete the performa based on where I think all the metrics will fall, I then apply my formulas to say, okay, if we're not hitting 10% bottom line, or if, you know, if that's what we're targeting, what do I need to do? So I will then go back and adjust my performa to hit that metric before I ever present to the owners or to a bank. So with new restaurants, it's more difficult. With existing restaurants, it's easier because you know if I have a light concept, there's certain assumptions we can make that will flow to the next one. I'm sure most of the folks listening own or operate existing restaurants. And I didn't spend a lot of time playing with the P&L, transforming it into a pro forma to figure out what are the right choices to make next quarter, next year. How can we really weaponize it as a forward-looking document to make better decisions today? The P&L statement is your key weapon to making it better tomorrow. But I would bet a lot of independents never really look at it, or when they look at it, it's at the end of the year when their CPA says, here's the results. We really need to teach operators to understand the P&L, understand what the numbers mean, and understand what decisions they can make to improve their operations financially. Let's talk about that. Because one of the reasons I believe that there's so much overwhelm around numbers is because there are a lot of friggin' numbers. And it's important to know which ones to track and which ones not to track. And Personally, I'm obsessed with this idea of leading versus lagging indicators. I would argue that I've spent most of my life like really aggressively tracking the lagging indicators, which is in no way helpful. What numbers should we be looking at? To be honest, I only look at a few. I don't even care that much about sales when I'm doing analysis. I'm looking at all my operation costs. And in this formula, I take all the operational costs and non-controllable costs plus labor. And then I divide that by our actual cost of goods. And what that creates is an overhead factor. I think that's kind of the important lesson for people to learn here is learning what that overhead factor is. That tells me a really important picture. Most of our restaurants have an overhead factor of about two. So what does that mean? If I'm selling an item that costs a buck, of raw costs, I have two additional dollars of overhead for my labor and all the operational and non-controllable expenses. So that $1 raw cost item has a $3 break-even point. So if I'm selling that cup of coffee for $2.95, I'm losing $0.05 cents every time I sell it. If I want to figure out how to make a 10% profit, I simply divide $3 by 0.9, and it tells me I need to charge $3.30. And if I charge $3.03 or more for that cup of coffee, I know I'm going to make my 10% profit no matter what happens to my restaurant. So you see, I don't, I'm not as concerned about the sales. I'm looking all at the expenses and trying to figure out what is the metric I need to 
come up with to set my menu prices. And isn't that the rub? In our industry, the solution is always more sales. Exactly. Right? It's always once I hit a million dollars in sales, $2 million in sales, $3 million in sales, that's when I'm going to really start raking in the money. And it's a fallacy. It is because all you're really offsetting is fixed expenses. If your rent is fixed, more sales means a smaller rent percentage. Salaries, for instance, most salaries are fixed. So more sales means my management cost percentage is down. But most of our things are variable. I sell more stuff. I got to buy more food. I bring more butts and chairs. I got to bring more staff in. So I think the just need more sales thing, I think, is one of the huge myths in restaurant management. I talk about a particular item we had on one of the restaurants when I showed up. It was a tenderloin tips with blue cheese fondue. And people loved it. And it was on our specials menu for $9.95. So back in those days, you could get six ounces of beef tenderloin, blue cheese fondue, and bread for $9.95. Well, when I ran it through my metrics, it's like, well, great. This item costs us like $13. Right. (laughs) And So back to your sales thing. So yeah, we could sit and sell that thing all day long. And I can guarantee you all you're going to do is lose more money because every time that thing went out the door, we're losing four bucks. So that's why I don't get that hung up about sales. I really want to make sure that we set the pricing model to the right formula to hit a certain profit. Then the bonus is if you get more sales, it actually just improves that. If you're expecting $3 million of sales in your restaurant and you set your menu to make a 10% profit and you do $4 million, you're going to be laughing all the way to the bank. But it also helps you with one other thing is competition. So if all of a sudden you have a competitor come across the street from you, you know what you have to set your menu to to make your desired profit. So it allows you to be price competitive with that competitor because they're coming in saying, "Okay, I'm going to go match this guy across the street's prices. And you can look and say, well, using my metric, I can actually lower my price as 50 cents and still hit my 10% profit if that's what your desire is. So it does also help you with competition. The restaurant industry is filled with unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? Well, I think spending more time teaching financial literacy would be important. I think we're already seeing it in our industry, a shift of uh, work-life balance. Even within our restaurants, 10 years ago, we were pushing managers in the 55 hours a week. Right now, our schedules are written at maybe 45. So I think to get the most out of our stores and to keep our employees happy and motivated, working on work-life balance, one thing I think the Nova Group is very good at is we also tie in all of our compensations to the success of the restaurant. And since we started doing that in 2017, I mean, our profits have increased by three times. And I would like to see the restaurant industry work at rewarding our team members for the hard work they do. I think too many restaurants just look at labor as an expense. Let's just throw some dollars at it and we'll get whatever output we get. If we lose them, we'll retrain. I don't think that's going to work anymore. I think we really need to loop in our employees into the success of what we're trying to build. 
That's Bruce Nelson. Check out Bruce's book wherever you buy books. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.